0: Well, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm a pastor and elder here at Resonate. I'm glad you all are with us this morning. We've got a, f- a fun and interesting text to tackle today out of the book of Matthew. Um, and uh, we've been working through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're new with us, uh, that's where we're going to be. We've kind of been walking. Uh, The start of the year, we took a little break in the summertime, and now we're uh, continuing uh, our journey uh, along this wonderful and rich gospel. And so I'm going to read the text. Um, I'm going to open the floor to a few questions, and I'm sure there'll be a few uh, related to today. Uh, But uh, let's let's start there. Matthew 10, starting at verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, stay in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of value, uh, more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whatever denies me before men, uh, I will uh, deny my father who is in heaven. I think I took those last two and we'll use them next week, sorry, to keep reading. Um, questions? <laughs> what stands out? What is puzzling? What is um, maybe troubling? What confusing? What have you not noticed? That's a good question. That's constantly a good question, I think, of the Gospels. Oh, uh, sorry, I, I need to do the better job at that. So it was a question, uh, was it just for the twelve in this moment, or is that a larger statement towards all disciples everywhere? Um, things like that. I, I, I'm probably not gonna address that in my sermon, so I can address that now. The fact that uh, in the previous section it said, don't go to the Gentiles, but now it's including, hey, the Gentiles are probably gonna notice this stuff too. Uh, I, think, I think Matthew might be making a larger commentary. Yeah, there's a little bit of, of instruction that's like, look, well, like, if persecution's there, it's okay to move on. Like, there's some wisdom and shrewdness that you should operate out of, but you also need to stand up to some of it, too. Yeah, there's a little bit of both. Sorry, and she pointed out the contrast between fleeing and versus sometimes the enduring of persecution. Yeah. What did you say? I said not so. No, there's a lot of not so funds in here, yeah, pointing out that family members will deliver each other over. And, and we will see some of that phrasing come up again in, uh, in basically next, not next week, two weeks from now, um, related to Jesus speaking, um, whoever loves his father and his mother more than me. And he'll, he'll speak to some of those family dynamics again. So uh, we'll, we'll cover that a little more next time. Anything else? It's a loaded section. Yes. Yeah, I'll I'll deal with that one. Yeah, the 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 phrasing of the Son of Man and all the towns of Israel. Um, Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that that little phrase is a little bit odd, and how much do we prepare and know and are ready to speak, or how much do we rely on the Holy Spirit supernaturally to give us words in that moment, all those sort of things. But part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of all the things that have been taught, so even as we speak scriptures in moments of persecution or whatever we'd call it, there's still the Holy Spirit doing the, that sort of work. And I won't, I won't camp out on that verse very much today, but that's a, that's a good one. That's a good area to observe. And these are the questions we should ask. Like, that's why I'm encouraging this every week right now. And I know it eats up a little bit of my sermon time, but to, but to approach text and be like, this is peculiar. Why are they saying it this way? Or um, how much, the, the context question, how much is this for these 12 disciples? Or maybe the 72, if you're in Luke. Or how much is it for us today? I mean even even the great commission, it's a wonderful question, yeah yeah we'll we'll camp out on that one probably a little more today that that'll be that'll that's that's the controversial section to me, yeah well, that's a good one, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll we'll, we'll kind of cover that don't worry. I just Yeah, and kind of warns look, I'm going to experience this stuff. So don't be surprised when you guys experience this stuff uh, by saying the same things I'm saying. Yeah, that's great. And, and letting us know ahead of time. Yeah, of course. One says, uh, those who are in the same that sounds like a little workspace. Yeah, it's true. There are scriptures in the Bible that sound very workspace, and there are scriptures in the Bible that sound very grace based. And that's where we have to sit. <laughs> um, It it just is, like everything's not always what we call antinomian. Everything's not always, all the verbiage is you can just write out grace to the end of your life. There are plenty of instructions that are like, look, like part of the experience of grace or maybe the fruit is the endurance. It is the, the works. Now, does that save you? That's another story, but it's at least part of the equation in some ways. And so, yeah, cool. Let me, let me move on. We could probably do this all day long. Um, so I, I want to open just with a little bit of a picture for us uh, that, that sometimes it's like the smallest things. Um, sometimes it's a little bit of salt water that gets into the rebar of a building or a slow trickle of water through a limestone foundation or millimeters of expanding brick and mortar every season. It's small things. But all those small things over a long period of time are very problematic. If those things just keep going and going and going and going, it can bring down whole structures instantaneously. And we saw that in an apartment building in Hollywood, Florida two years ago. What happens when water gets into rebar and causes problems? We see large sinkholes when um, limestone gets worn away over time and over time. Or when brick eventually in the mortar starts decaying and um, in in Davenport, Iowa, and a whole wall comes collapsing down all in one moment. Now things have been happening in all those stories for years and years and years. Had been all part of it, yet in one moment, total destruction just seems to come all at once. Unknown to the residents, unknown to the people there, small enough things that probably most people wouldn't even notice they were happening. And you're like, what does this have to do with this text at all? And, um, and, and so I want to unpack a little bit as we go. We'll, we'll find out. Um, but today, I, there's just pieces. And there'll be some things I think we hit a pause on, and I'll we'll talk about that as well. But let's dive into the text itself. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves." And so, uh, if we were here last week, we covered a little bit of Jesus starting to warn his disciples, hey, you're gonna go through towns and there's gonna be people who don't welcome you. You're gonna go proclaiming the kingdom is near and you're gonna go healing and there's still gonna be people who are going to reject what you are coming to say. And as I said, as a good rabbi to disciple relationship, if, if Jesus is going to be experiencing and living these things, then we would end up too. That we're, we're going to do the things he did, which is proclaim the gospel, proclaim the kingdom is near. We're going to go around showcasing the kingdom through things like healing and all that kind of stuff, but that they're also going to suffer because Jesus also suffers. He's, he's being pretty plain about it. He was misunderstood, he was maligned by others, he was slandered by others. And so, disciples, that's what he's saying this is going to happen. Now, as the instruction here, go to town. Be kind of a jerk. Make sure everyone knows what a terrible, screwed up person they are so that, and that God is mad at them and has all these things that, for them unless they trust in the blood of Jesus and God's not mad at you anymore. Is that the message that these disciples will probably have on their lips? Probably not. It's the kingdom of God is near, at least here. Actually, I'm not sure anywhere in scripture the gospel is ever quite summarized that way. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff next week, but I don't get that impression that we don't go around as sort of more vicious, because the instructions here, what do they go out as? As what? A sheep, right? Sheep. This, this is the posture of an evangelist. Sheep. That, that's the instruction here, with a message about a kingdom and king. And for various reasons, people are gonna reject that, the king, but, but that's our message. Now, as a church, I, I know our struggle um, with this is probably not as attack dogs. Oh, that is not the posture of Resonate. That's not the posture of most of us. Um, if anything, uh, we probably struggle to go out at all. And, and I affirm. I affirm most of us probably have a bit of a distaste towards sort of the, the, the more pushy, aggressive evangelism that exists out there. People on street corners with signs, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I will affirm that I have questions about that methodology as well. But, yet, we as disciples are sent by Jesus as well. As I said, I think there's a parallel between these 12 and their instructions and what we have. And I think Jesus sends us as sheep, as sheep to the world, with speech that's seasoned with grace, absolutely. And we introduce people to a king, the king of the universe who is the prince of peace and has mercy and grace on sinners. That is the message of a sheep, right? And, And I'm always cautious on some of the ways that we sort of frame evangelism but that's not the main point of this message but go where jesus goes in all areas i think that's what he's instructing and don't be surprised but be wise and shrewd and so even as we go it's not we we have to be wise and shrewd even of our methodologies even of those who are going to disagree with us that there's some some shrewdness to it like a serpent now, we're still sheep, we're still, we've got to be innocent as doves, but, but there's still some wisdom of how and when and, and the methods that we do those sort of things. And um, I, think, I think sometimes we, we, we struggle with that. We struggle with really thinking through, like, all right, like it's not here's a prepackaged four points that you have to sit down with someone and walk them through. I think it requires more shrewdness, more wisdom than just that. Now, sure, it's helpful to know, sort of gospel presentations, but every single person you you talk to is a different person with different struggles, with different stories, with different understandings of the world, and the gospel will be good news to everybody a little bit differently based upon who they are and what they've struggled with. Maybe they're struggling with their baggage of their past. Maybe they're struggling in that moment to feel empowered by anything. It's like all different ways that the gospel comes to speak and that we are wise and we are shrewd about it. And Jesus will conclude this section by pointing to just how far that suffering may actually go. By verse 38, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so he will end this whole section. This is sort of the second big uh, speech section of Jesus with that eventual, eventuality of saying like, look, there's, there is a, a death that could be at the end of this process. But we'll deal with that when we get there. Verse 17, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the gentiles then they will deliver you over not, do not be anxious how you are to speak and what you are to say and what you are to say will be given to you in that hour for if you do not speak uh, for it is not you who speak but the spirit of the father speaking through you brother will deliver brother over to death Father's child, children, children will rise against their parents and put them to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It sounds like fun, right? It's, hey, go and preach. Kingdom of God has arrived. You're going to bring peace and shalom to these towns, healing the towns, and this is what might happen to you: flogging, persecution. Now, each of the Gospel writers have different perspective on um, the Holy Spirit a little bit, um, of what they emphasize about the Spirit. But the one area where all four are completely aligned is that in times of distress for the followers of God, the Holy Spirit is present. It's a constant refrain that that when he's speaking, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he's like, this is going to get hard, but I need you to know the Holy Spirit will be with you. I'm giving you a comforter in the midst of your distress. And I think the same is here too. Now, we can get into some nuance of, like, how does it give us the words to say and stuff like that. But I think Jesus is instructing his disciples and saying, look, when, when this gets really hard, I need you to know God is with you. I need you to know the Holy Spirit is here with you. And, and so I think there's, as I said, this broad language that is beyond just the 12 here, um, but, but this invitation as disciples that there will be suffering I'm not going to belabor this point, but I feel like I should make it that as Christians in America, let me ask you a few questions. Has any of us been dragged outside of a church here in America and flogged? No, right? That has not happened to us. Have we been dragged before Governor Kemp or Biden in order to be prosecuted or um, uh, 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 treated uh, poorly? Has that happened to any of us so far? No, right? And so I'm, I'm cautious, I want to be cautious to speak of our experiences as America. I think sometimes we get a little flippant around the word prosecu- or persecution, um, when, sure, discrimination happens, maybe there's social stigma for following Jesus, um, or perhaps at times uh, the secular world's rejecting bad Christians, acting poorly as well. Let's be real about that as well. But let's not water down the word. I'm, I just want to be cautious about this, because guess what, there is legitimate and real Persecution, open doors said 360 million Christians this past year experienced what they call high levels of persecution and discrimination. And guess guess how many of those are in the U.S. Zero. It's just what it is. People that are killed, tortured, uh, imprisoned, or churches were destroyed in the process. And it's legitimate things that happen every day in the global church, brothers and sisters of ours globally. And so. I just want to highlight that. There are things we should be praying for. We should pray for the persecuted church that God gets glory out of those moments, absolutely. But I want to be cautious that we're not just throwing around the word of persecution uh, sometimes that devalues it of what is really happening in some places. Um, It just, when everything is persecution, then nothing is persecution. So uh, I'm just cautious about that. But then, to bring us back to the context, it says, when you, they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um, what I think is happening, uh, or what Jesus is instructing here is saying, like, you don't, won't finish this mission until the Son of Man arrives. And, and I think Jesus is likely cryptically speaking about his arrival in Jerusalem, which is really what people expected. Not just the Messiah to come to, to there, but the Son of Man to come to reestablish the kingdom. And Jesus is like, yes, the son of man, him is going to arrive and establish his kingdom. It's just not going to be exactly how they expect. It's going to be through his death and resurrection. So now by the time the new Testament comes to a close, whenever that is 80 AD or something. And even the first several decades of the church after that, do you think the gospel has made it to all the towns in Israel? I would say yes, from all evidence we've seen of evangelism in the first 100 or 50 years of the church. Yeah, it did. Now, did that happen within the first three years of Jesus doing ministry? No. And the disciples would get to Jerusalem, and certainly the good news of the kingdom has not made it to every town in Jerusalem. And so I think that's simply the instruction there. It's not about Jesus' return that we're still waiting for. I think the instruction here is to the disciples of saying, look, like, you're, you're, I'm going to send you out, but we're not going to finish this task before I die. We're not going to finish this task before the king arrives. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, what did they just accuse Jesus of a few verses earlier in the end of chapter 9? Yeah, cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's exactly what they say. And she's like, they say this about me. They're they're going to say this about you. They're going to connect the dots between my disciples and me. Now, the prince of demons uh, is a term associated uh, with um, a character called Beelzebub, uh, and um, we'll we'll deal with that a little bit more uh, in a moment. Um, but but I think Jesus is simply saying, if you're going to be like me, you're going to experience what I experience. Uh, Sarah had a good point. Uh, we were talking. Or, working through this message related to this. And she says, um, where I'm walking, uh, where am I walking or living uh, in a way that she, uh, of Jesus that is producing some of the results that Jesus experienced, right? Because the disciples are being accused. Like there's, there's people coming along going, hey, like we're, we're, they're, they're being slandered, they're being maligned, there's all these things happening to them. That if no one ever has a response to our faith, It doesn't necessarily mean that we should start to be more abrasive, but it should cause us to reflect if we are really speaking or casting vision of the kingdom. And I think it's a legit reflection. If if no one's responding to us at all, what, what are we doing? What is the thing we speak into other people at all? Now, I also want to remind us that the persecution so far that Jesus has spoken about is almost entirely from the religious leadership. Right, Like, this is the Pharisee's accusation around the prince of Beelzebub, or the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And he speaks about being flogged where? Synagogues, right? Yeah. And so the bad guy in the story up to this point, the, the sort of characters that Jesus is like, this is, they're going to reject everything about what we're doing. It's not the pagan boogeyman. It's not the secular boogeyman. It's the religious and theology police of their day. That at some point, speaking and living the kingdom, it's going to have some, some rejection, even from the religious folks. And then we get this framing of things in this next section with sparrows and hell and everything else. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And when I tell in the dark, say into light, and what the, you hear uh, whispered, proclaim to the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than any sparrow. So it's a bit strange and enigmatic a little bit. But Jesus says here um, three times, he, he says, do not fear right? Here's even a slide to help us see this language. Three times, have no fear, do not fear, fear not, right? And then one time, fear. Fear. And who the disciples should fear um, is given in that. Now, have no fear of who? What's the first one? (laughs) Yeah, them. Uh, Who's the them, right? What did Jesus just say? Those who are going to connect the dots between you and Beelzebub who are going to slander you uh, around the the sort of demon connections, have no fear of them. People are going to say that, that you're in league with the prince of demons, but don't be afraid. Truth will come out. It will be proclaimed. Keep speaking the uh, the truth I give you. Their libel will not stand ultimately in the long run. And then it says, do not fear. Who? The next one. Yeah. Those who could kill the body, right? Now this one sounds a little harder. <laughs> hey, don't fear the person who's gonna put you to death. It's like, okay, that, that feels a little uh, not easy, but I get it. I can't touch like the soul, like my, my true self uh, in, in all this. And then the last one, the last fear not, is who? Yeah. I think the last fear not is the Father, right? Because it says, why should you have no fear? Because we have a God who takes care of sparrows, who is compassionate and cares for you. You could buy two sparrows for like a penny, and, and, and yet not one of those tiny sparrows falls to the ground apart from the loving notice of God the Father you know, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me, right? It's a wonderful song. And he's so loving and caring. He counts all the hairs on your head. And some of us, that may be easier than others, right? Um, but, he, but he counts all the hairs on her head. But then in the middle, he'll say, there is one to fear. The one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or in Hebrew and Greek, the word Gehenna. So who and what is Jesus talking about there? Um, so let's pause uh, a little bit on the word Gehenna. It's translated in a lot of uh, English Bibles as the word hell, um, but hell as a word is an Anglo-Norse word. It's actually borrowed weirdly enough from pagan mythology. Uh, so the, the death god of the Thor mythology is, the, is hell um, and it's borrowed and we use it as the English word for it, which is weird enough to begin with that we're borrowing pagan words to do that. But Gehenna, the word, the word there, is, is actually, I mean, it's a location. It's the Valley of um, Hinnom. It's, it's a literal place in Jerusalem. You can go visit to this day. So if we ever do a trip from the church, I will gladly take you to hell and back. Um, but, but it's a literal place of the Valley of uh, Hinnom. has a dark history. Um, it has a very dark history. It's the site of Molech worship. Uh, that had happened in Israel's history. Child sacrifice was a regular part of Moloch worship. In that, the Israelites at some point even started practicing it. Um, We see it referenced like in Jeremiah seven, they built high places in Topheth, uh, which is in the valley of the son of Hunmon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did I even, it didn't even come to my mind. And later, um, to to sort of defile uh, the place, Uh, They had basically, and and this happens to most valleys in major cities. When you don't have uh, an infrastructure of sewage and stuff like that, where does everything go? To valleys, right? And and so most cities will will treat most valleys as sort of the dump for the cities. It's it's where refuse goes, it's where everything gets run off, and and often trash and everything else ends up in these places as well. This, This is the imagery that's happening now. Now, like I've been to the dump and the cab a bunch of times. Don't ask me why, but I've been there for a bunch of reasons. <laughs> and, and when you get there, it's it's gross, it's smelly, it's all sorts of trash for the city. Um, and and what do you think would be at the dump? Like what do you think? What accompanies food waste? What was that? Bugs. Yeah. There's all sorts of birds, It's rats, and there's worms, right? Maggots everywhere. It's just Anywhere there's food waste, maggots will show up. It's magical. They just are always there. And then what else comes with food base? What does waste start producing in the air? Gases. right? Like methane and stuff like that. Right. And if you go to like most modern um, uh, dumps, even to this day, you will find, uh, they usually control that process a lot more now. They'll find um, fire stacks and stuff like that. There's these pipes that kind of come out of the ground and like if you drive by at night, you usually see the fire. Because of the chemicals that it is, you can't really see it during the day, but you can see the fires at night. It's fascinating. Now, they don't have all that then, and so fires would just kind of burn. Pretty typical. And so you have places where there's always worms and a fire that just will never go out, right? That's what you have at trash stones. right? So when scripture starts talking about places as the place where the worm does not die or the fire is never put out, it's imagery. It's imagery all tied into these sort of places in scripture. So God warns Jerusalem in in Jeremiah when he starts speaking of this, because he's like, look, you keep thinking, Jerusalem, that everything is great because we have the temple, God's with us, all this sort of stuff. But I'm telling you, Babylon is coming because of the way you practice injustice, all this kind of stuff. Babylon is showing up at your doorstep. And when the Babylonians come, all of Jerusalem will be like a heaven. All of it will be destroyed in this wasteland. It will all be a waste pile at the end. And that's the instruction. That's that's the warning that's given in the book of Jeremiah. Now, Jesus says we are to fear the one who can bring us that, who, who can bring us total destruction, a wasteland, who can make our body and soul like a trash dump, a wasteland. So he's saying while these disciples are on mission, while you're going out proclaiming the kingdom of God, that there's moments of inbreaking of the kingdom. You're driving out demons. You're healing people. Some of the leaders are going to come along and, and, and they're going to say it's by the prince of demons. And in that mission, you are to fear the one who could destroy body and soul and make it a wasteland. That's, that's what you need to know. Now, there's one more backdrop piece before we answer the question. It's important to know sort of the anticipation of the people too, of what they expected this to turn out to be. That that when the Messiah would show up, most thought we are going to have a holy war. Like what Israel needs right now is a holy war. We need uh, to kick out the Romans. We need to reestablish Israel as the nation that is going to uh, rule over all nations, and we're going to do that through a holy war. That was always um, in almost every sect of Judaism. There was still some expectation of this holy war. That the the the. The sons of light would would triumph over the sons of darkness. That would be the picture, and Messiah would help lead that. And Jesus arrives on the scene, and he certainly does not seem to endorse that expectation of the people about how the kingdom will come. And we will see John the Baptist struggle with this in in a few weeks. We see his disciples constantly struggle with this. But Jesus comes along and says, you know what? Love your enemies, right? That doesn't sound like holy war to me. Love your enemies. He comes along, he starts healing Roman servants. He starts doing all these things that everyone did not want or expect the Messiah to do. Because I think Jesus understands that the Romans, the Gentiles, Israel too, are all slaves in some ways. That there's dark powers behind all of it in some ways. That we cannot just free Israel by killing the bad guys, because that never worked in Israel's past. Right? Even when they got to Canaan with Joshua, did they drive out all the evil that ever existed in Canaan? No. We will find out multiple times, they'll be like, oh yeah, they, they drove out all the Philistines, oh, the, and, or the, the Canaanites, and then the very next like chapter. And while the Canaanites were still in the Holy Land, it was like, they, they never did it, because it doesn't work. Because Jews and Gentiles are both in bondage by something demonic, something evil, something behind the scenes, that there is a negative, evil spiritual force that does exist in the world there's no liberation by physical war and the true war is not to be raged against the gentiles but to be raged against the, the satan the evil one the accuser and T. Wright says this it is that jesus in his teaching and his challenge to israel aimed precisely at telling israel to repent of their militaristic nationalism Jesus was offering a different way of liberation, a way which affirmed the humanness of the national enemy as well as the destiny of Israel, and hence also affirmed, affirmed the destiny of Israel as the bringer of the light to the world, not as the one who would crush the world with military zeal. And how is Israel light to the nations? Not ultimately by waging this holy war, but by the continued cycle of. Um, Not through the the, the continued cycle of destroying enemies by by Satan's tactics. That's not what Jesus says this kingdom is actually going to be about. It could be argued from a few statements that Jesus makes that actually seeking a holy war is satanic in and of itself. And Jesus knew, Israel, if you're going to continue on this path, and he gives this warning multiple times to the leadership of Israel, if you're going to continue on this path, it's going to lead to Gehenna again. Everything that Jeremiah warned everybody about, we are here again. And he gives multiple warnings to particularly the leadership about it and here to his disciples. It would lead to to hell. Now, some of you may be asking, okay, so do you not believe in a literal hell, Chris? Here's what we're going to do. Next week, that's what we're going to talk about. Okay, We're going to take a break from Matthew for a week. We're going to start unpacking hell. I think I get enough questions about it. I think there's enough um, things to deconstruct about it. Um, there's enough that Dante has brought so much influence into the church that we need to wrestle with. There's scriptures we need to wrestle with. There's ideas we need to wrestle with. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to take next week to do so. Labor Day, so hopefully most of you aren't here for all the controversy and won't ask me a bunch of questions. Um, but, uh, that's, that, no, I, I hope you are here. No. And we're going to talk about the words that are there. We're going to talk about Hades, because that exists we're, we're in the language. We're going to talk about Gehenna, that we talked about today. We're going to talk about Tartarus and Sheol, which is sort of the Old Testament language of Dit. Talk about Satan or Lucifer or Beelzebub and all that sort of language, I think, as well, because it's really important um, that we have some understanding of these things as well. It'll be so much fun. I can't wait. Um, so. So we'll put a pause on unpacking much more around the hell concept and keep moving. So who should we fear? Let me give you a hint. I don't think it's the father. Now, once again, people can disagree with me, my interpretation of the text, not everybody stands in this camp. I do think it is, in fact, the Satan, the destroyer. Who is the destroyer of souls? Satan. I just don't see the father as the one in this text and what Jesus highlights as the destroyer of souls. And T. Wright goes on to say this, some have seen the one who can cast into Gehenna as Yahweh or the father, but this is unrealistic. Israel's God is portrayed as the creator and sustainer, one who can lovingly be trusted in all circumstances, not the one who waits with a large stick to beat down everyone who steps out of line. Rather here, we have a redefinition of the battle in terms of the identification of the real enemy. The one who can kill the body is the imagined enemy. It's, it's Rome or, or something like that. Who then is the real enemy? Surely it's not Israel's own God who is portrayed as the good caretaker in the text, but the real enemy is the accuser, the Satan. Because let's look at it. So have no fear of them. The ones who are gonna accuse you of Beelzeb- following, serving Beelzebub. They'll malign you, they'll say all sorts of things. Do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Maybe this is the Romans or the religious leaders in this moment. You might have some trepidation, but but don't fear them in the long run. They can't mess with your your soul. But fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. And I think Jesus is saying, look, have a holy dread (laughs) in some ways that there is a real and legit enemy to your soul. That there's something seeking to destroy both you and your, your whole self, body and soul in Gehenna, and we'll, as I said, continue to follow that next week, that if we follow the ways of the devil, that it will be our undoing ultimately, like just to use the Sermon on the Mount as like a, a, a paradigm, that if we were to live in the way of anger instead of reconciliation, if we, if we live in a way that we're objectifying the other gender and instead of marital faithfulness and simply love amongst brothers and sisters, we treat them differently than that. The way of deceit and manipulation instead of honesty. The way of retributive justice and eye for an eye instead of seeking creative and nonviolent ways of restorative justice instead. A way of hating enemies instead of loving them. A way of putting on the religious show instead of living it out no matter who is looking. The way of holding grudges instead of the way of forgiveness. The way that is hoarding more and more and more and not living in a lifestyle of generosity. The way of anxiety and seeking control of things rather than trust in God and his provision. The way of judgment, instead of confession and mercy. The way of treating others poorly, rather than how we desire to also be treated. And if we live this way, it is the way of destruction. And wide is the path. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. This will destroy both body and soul. But concerning God the Father, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them is on the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered, so fear not. Therefore you are of more value than many sparrows." So who do we not fear? The Father, right? That's what Jesus is simply saying. Here's the one you don't fear, the Father. Now you may say, aren't we supposed to fear God? And yes, Scripture says that's the beginning of wisdom, right? at some point in everybody's life, there is this moment of taking seriously the existence of a creator God who has all the power in the world, yes. But to emphasize that verse here, when, you know what the most common command is in all of scripture? Fear not, right? And it's not now that you're in a holy spot, now I can tell you not to fear. It's like every single time God seems to show up on the scene, it's like, hey, I need you to not fear me. I need you to not. So we should take seriously when Jesus says you should fear and the one he should, we should fear. Because the wide is the way and easy is the path that leads to that destruction. And a lot of people will go that way. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Choose the narrow way. It's more difficult, it's not easy. Loving your enemy is not easy. But it does lead to life. To do unto others as you would have them do unto this. And we could join the crowd. We can all live in the way. I mean, all the last four years, five years have shown there are tons of ways that the church acts just like those outside the church, right? And we can live that way. We can keep doing it. But what happens? What happens to the crowd that rises up and starts a holy war? Um, I'll leave out this last quote. Um, what, What happens is Gehenna. What happens to most of Israel within? the lifetime of most of these disciples as they continue to pursue this. What happens by 70 AD? Gahanna. It becomes a wasteland, the temple's destroyed. So many people are killed. Enough that they, they hole up at Masada and a ton of them commit suicide. That's what they do. It comes. So let me conclude, I'm, I'm a little over. So maybe we have a healthy fear of what is evil. Um, as the great, late great Kaiser Sose said, yes. "The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist." It's actually by a, an older poet, but that—that that we would not take seriously—that there is a legitimate, real enemy to the work of Christ in the world. I think Jesus is inviting his disciples into that, going, "Look, there is a legit enemy, a spiritual enemy that exists in this world. But to take seriously that sin, what sin does." in and through us. As one author says, um, that God didn't need to punish people for sin because sin in itself is its own punishment devouring us from the inside. Or Dorothy Sayers would write that sin is a deep interior, a dislocation of the soul and its desire to, is to keep control of our life. And we would go back to the starting story and we can often find ourselves as the ones who just end up in destruction. It just shows up. At some point in some of our lives, like everything just blows up. A moment of anger where everything explodes or marriage falls apart or um, lying finally just blows up in your face. And those are wonderful moments. They're easy to point out. They go, look, like that, that is when everything came crashing down. But we miss out on all the steps that led to that. All the smaller sins that we thought were unimportant. And Jesus is like, no, you need to realize what what the enemy wants to do to your soul. Yes, there's these moments where all the devastation comes crashing down, but it's the fruit of years and years and years of not taking serious sin and the enemy. But, and here's the good news, we have a father that loves you and cares for you in the midst of that. A father who does not seek to visit damage upon your soul. That every creature is the object of God's love and concern. Even the tiny little sparrow, God loves and is concerned for it. And you, image bearers, occupy a special place in God's heart. Not a sparrow. A sparrow is noticed by God. But you are, if you're in him, you're a child of God. He watches and has concern over you. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know how we know that God loves us? Because he gave. He gave. He gave his only son. That's so how we know. He loves us. He gave. And then Jesus showed us the greatest love by laying down his life for his friends. And he conquers death for us. Breaks the shackles of sin. And through believing in him, we step into the grace and mercy of a God who deeply loves and cares for his people. That's what we are told in this text. Now next week, we'll deal with all the complications. And I can't look forward to it. But for now, I want us to sit here uh, I, want us to, uh, I want to invite Sarah up now just to, 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 to lead us in, in prayer and reflection on what was taught. Um, so as the teaching guide kind of concludes for us to sit in this, to pray in this, um, and then she'll set up communion for us as well.